Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Our guests on the podcast today are Dr. Milad Shadru and Dr. Zainab Al-Mukhtar. Both Milad and Zainab are leading cosmetic dentists in the UK and are at the forefront of the most advanced techniques in what is known as smile design in dental circles. In addition to being a leading cosmetic dentist, Milad has become better known by the title The Singing Dentist. His dental parodies of hit songs have made him a YouTube phenomenon and he regularly features on TV and radio to offer his insights into dental public health topics. Zainab is based in Harrow on the Hill, and in addition to being a leading dentist, she's also a highly skilled cosmetic injector, as well as an injectables trainer. In this episode, we'll learn about the most common cosmetic dental procedures, what smile design involves, and we also discuss how dentistry and facial aesthetic approaches can be combined to treat our patients holistically. Welcome our expert cosmetic dentists. I've been quite excited about this one, partly because I've been friends with Zainab for forever, it seems like, on Instagram. And we're constantly messing each other about facial <laughs> aesthetics and teeth and weird stuff and memes and <laughs> all sorts of things. Um, and then, of course, um, Milad, um, people may not know you in Australia. I don't know, maybe they do, but you've gone pretty viral with your singing dentist sort of persona, as well as obviously your amazing dentistry. So maybe we'll start with ladies first. So Zainab, did you want to introduce yourself a bit more formally and tell our listeners a bit more about your practice and yourself? Yeah, so I'm um, a cosmetic dentist in Harrow on the Hill, which is in northwest London. I, That's where I'm from. <laughs> yeah. I co-own a private practice with my husband, Ahmed, and I split my week between facial aesthetics and cosmetic dentistry. So I qualified as a dentist 10 years ago, and then about seven years ago, went into facial aesthetics, fell in love with it, and did loads of advanced training with facial aesthetics, and then couldn't choose between dentistry and facial aesthetics and found that organically, I was actually merging the two in my day-to-day practice. So that's what I now do. And so I stopped doing the kind of dentistry that doesn't fit in with that. So I've stopped everything other than cosmetic dentistry. And I now do just smile design and cosmetic dentistry and facial aesthetics. Um, and about six years ago, I started teaching facial aesthetics, love teaching. Um, and I do that on a regular basis. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much a, a summary of what I do. Well, you also now inject where I used to inject at Beyond Medispa in Knightsbridge, right? Uh- yeah, of course. Yeah. So I, I work there um, every other week. So every fortnight I'm there for um, on a Wednesday and I'm one of their facial aesthetic doctors. Yeah. I know you used to work there years ago. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They need to have a hall of fame of people who have left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and that just breaks up my week. It's nice to be part of another team because otherwise in my own clinic, it's extremely busy, but you know, when you're your own boss, it's a different vibe from when you are working for others. And it's just nice for me to break up that extremely heavy responsibility in my clinic with a little bit of a lighter um, team style uh, every fortnight. So that's why I do it. 
Absolutely. Now, mm-hmm. Miller, tell us about your practice. Um, is it similar to Zainab? And I know you've dabbled with injectables, but you're not doing it so much now. So tell us all about that. And then how the hell did you become a singing dentist? <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's an interesting one. So um, yeah, I, I qualified um, 16 years ago um, and it feels like a long time ago. And um, yeah, so mostly... Um, I've been at the same clinic since I qualified. So basically it was my first job um, as an associate. And then I took over from the guy about five years after I started there um, and just been the principal there for 10 years now. And then reduced kind of my workload. So I was doing a lot of kind of general work. I still do, you know, my, for my certain patients, I still do general care, but most of it now is cosmetic dental work. And I do one clinical day a week now. Um, and it's just focused on that. Now through lockdown, I've been doing two. Um, it's terrible terrible um but it's i I can have like a consult day now and then a a treatment day which kind of works quite well injectables so i did do it quite actively so facial aesthetic work i did quite actively for about six years but i stopped about three years ago doing it because i have an associate at the clinic who really really loved it so i kind of helped her get you know up and running with it and then I've become quite a good delegator at my clinic because I found that over time, like if you really want to do the things that you love, you have to have a good team around you and be able to delegate. And it's it's amazing if everybody loves what they do. So if you don't like a certain element of something, it's just not pleasurable to have to do it. And if you're kind of a bit stressed about it and then you think, God, I've got to do that today. Why not find someone that looks forward to doing that one thing? bring them in the tea and then just give it to them because if they work with passion, it's better for the patient. If you're working with passion, it's better for you. So that's kind of what I've become. And, and, you know, I've, I've got an amazing team that I can delegate to. So that's where we're at now. So Milad, um, I didn't know we were in the presence of a celebrity. Jake tells me you're um, very famous for being um, known as the singing dentist. Now, I'm, I live under a rock, obviously, so I hadn't heard about it, but Jake told me we should be buying tickets to your show, like we should be getting in line. Tell me tell me all about The Singing Dentist. How did this come about? Did you sneak, did you get the happy gas by accident and then someone was holding a camera? <laughs> well, kind of. Um, so basically, what I, I've always been involved in music growing up, and my dad's a musician, so I can play piano. I can, I can actually also play drums as well. So um, I heard you guys are drummers, right? I heard you guys, yes. that, you know. Yes, absolutely. So, um, and then I used to kind of rap and then there was a big sort of genre of music in the UK called Garage. UK oh, yes. Garage. Yeah. Oh, oh, garage. Big. And then, um, so I was like a Garage MC. I was kind of out and about and did radios and that was all through dental school, basically. So from like 99 onwards. Um, and the music side just always stuck with me. And I, even after I qualified, I still dabbled in stuff and I've got a production studio at home and I still make music and stuff. So DJ out and about. And then, um, one day a patient just didn't turn up for root canal. So I had like 45 minutes and they just didn't show. Imagine why. (laughs) Exactly. So I thought, let me just, you know, a song came on the radio. It was Hotline Bling by Drake. So this was like late 2016. And then I just started freestyling along with it and just rapping about root canal and how no one likes it. And I thought it was quite funny. And so I took out my phone and filmed myself doing it and sent it to a friend of mine who's also a dentist. And he thought it was hilarious. And he said he's going to post it online. I told him not to because I thought I looked ridiculous. And it's like, you know, dentists shouldn't behave like this, bro. So don't don't post it. But he posted it without me knowing. And it kind of started doing the rounds on Facebook groups and within the dental community. And then patients started to see it. But I use quite a lot of dental terminology in that. And so they didn't really get what I was talking about. 
but they liked the fact that there was a dentist and he was quite funny. My eyebrows started dancing. I don't know what happened there, guys. It's just that the eyebrows started doing their own thing. So that became part of the act. And then it had such a good response that I thought, okay, maybe I want to something. Let me actually try and do one and write one. So the first one I actually planned was Gappy. It was a parody of Happy by Pharrell Williams. At the time, that was like the biggest record. So I thought, let's just do it. Everyone knows the song, kids, adults, everyone knows it. And Gappy did really well. So I made a YouTube channel and called myself a singing dentist. And it's comedy, the singing, because I can't actually sing, which is great. It adds another layer to the whole performance. And then just started doing them every so often. So when there's a big tune that will come out, I just find a way to work it and give oral health advice and kind of make it accessible. And that's what the feedback was. People were telling me that, you know, their kids love it. It's making them brush their teeth. It's making them go to the dentist. So that's been about five years now that I do them every so often. And then a couple of things just started going super viral, super viral, like crazy style. And it, I did a parody of Ed Sheeran's Shape of You, which I called Save Your Tooth. <laughs> And that one, that did the numbers, man. And that gave me like, so yeah, I did, I did Australian telly. I think it was like Channel 7 News mm-hmm. or something. Yeah, yeah. Channel yeah, 7. Yes, yeah, so I did that live. So I like to like do the whole, you know, sit in front of Big Ben and House of Parliament at like 11 o'clock at night here. So it was like 7 o'clock over there or wherever it was. And I did that and it was amazing. So I was on German telly, French telly, the Ellen show from America called. Um, it, it went mad. So that's Don't kind of Philip Oh yes, gang, gang. And then the TV stuff's in the UK started happening. So that was again, just very strange. So, you know, we have a guy here called Dr. Hillary. He's like been the TV doctor for like the last 30 years or whatever. Right. So he talked about it on a show, a daytime TV show. And then the following week he was on holiday. So they brought me in to do like a live dental segment for the first time that they'd ever done it. And that went really well. And I just kind of took to it because I've always kind of performed and I feel comfortable. So I did the live telly that went well. Then we have loads of daytime tellies. And then anytime there was like a new story about teeth, they'd sort of wheel me out to do the bit. And it'd always be a bit of comedy at the start. I'd have to kind of sing a stupid song and wiggle the eyebrows and then talk about the dentistry side. So it just worked really well. And then more opportunities started happening. And here we are, the singing dentist. And now I'm on a podcast. Inside baby. So you had you well, had to go through all of that to get to this. I was going to say, you know, until you get <laughs> you know I mean? through Ellen and Oprah, you don't get on Inside Aesthetics, okay? That's what I mean. So, I mean, man's betting. I put in the work <laughs> to be here, guys. <laughs> now, Zainab, presumably when you did dental training, you didn't learn how to rap. But tell us, what, what does basic dental training um, sort of involve? I know it's roughly five years in the UK, but what does it look like just for listeners who you know, might have no idea about how dentists get their skill set? Um, so it's five years undergraduate training. And in that five years, we are basically very super specialized uh, in everything about the mouth. So oral medicine, um, dealing with soft tissues and bone. Uh, we'll learn, of course, about everything about teeth. So starting with anatomy, um, uh pathology of, of tooth decay, gum disease, all the pathology. And then as the years go by, we are um, adding on um, knowledge about different procedures and um, uh, different ways of doing things. So we, we have prosthodontics. So dentistry is divided in lots of subspecialities, let's say. So you've got prosthodontics, which is all about making things in the laboratory, be it removable prosthodontics like dentures, or fixed prosthetics like veneers and crowns. So there'll be that element. There'll be, as I said, oral medicine. There'll be restorative dentistry, basically the restoration of lost tooth tissue. 
be it um, because of tooth decay, a fracture or tooth wear. So restoring tooth tissue is another thing. Uh, Pediatric dentistry, orthodontics, um, oral surgery, removal of teeth, um, raising gum flaps, suturing, all of that. Um, endodontics, which is all about root canals. So there are all these different specialities. So it takes five years to learn all of these very, very well. And predominantly, it is hands-on from year two onwards. So for the f- for four years after that five years, we are treating patients in at least in, in my university in um, in London, King's College, um, and for many others as well. Usually, that you know there has to be a huge element of practical training because it is such a practical job. So actually, by the time we qualify, we have done a lot of work on patients. Um, so we already leave dental school with a lot of skill, already very used to dealing with patients. And the learning doesn't stop there. We just have to build on that skill. So you can't qualify. You can't even sit the exams until you've, ha- you've reached a certain quota of how many fillings you've done or how many extractions you've done. Then you sit the exam, you qualify, and then you, you have another year of training. Uh, I qualified 10 years ago. So the details, what happens after that may well have changed by now. There's they are changing every few years. At the time, we had one year of like foundation training where you'd work in a practice, but it had to be a designated practice where the tra- the principal or somebody in that practice was your trainer or your mentor for that year. Um, and once you you finish that year, you are then free to go out in, in the world and work for the NHS or uh, work in another practice, in private practice. Um, so that's that's it really. And from there... To be honest, you know, in dentistry, it's so rapidly evolving. There's so much to know. Until you retire, there is always going to be something to learn. So literally, as soon as people come out of dental school, it's the st- yes, we, we are very practical and hands-on, but it's the start of a very detailed journey of training from there on, like anything, like in medicine as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I hope that's kind of sums it up. So cosmetic dentistry, that falls into things is that dental uh, cosmetic dentistry is not an, uh, a formal speciality, but within dent, within undergraduate training, because we are taught to do restorative dentistry, which is basically building up teeth or doing a filling, you adapt that to build up a fractured front tooth if one of your patients comes in at 5 p.m. with a fractured tooth. So it's part of your training to be able to restore form and function of teeth so we are taught you know tooth morphology we are taught that but it's a basic level just enough to to restore what you have to but there's so much more to learn about cosmetic dentistry afterwards it's a minefield Mm. i was curious uh, and we're going to get into cosmetic dentistry in in great depth um, as we continue on the conversation i was curious to get an idea from both of you so maybe milad first and and then zainab if you've got anything to comment further what what's the industry like in terms of dentistry over in the UK? I mean, I know in Australia we seem to have more dentists than we have teeth. Um, they seem to be everywhere. Is it the sort of the same situation um, over there in the UK? And in terms of the scope of work that you guys are doing, I mean, when do you know sort of when to refer that patient on, say, to an endodontist or a periodontist and how much stuff are you guys keeping in-house? It seems to be a little bit of a, an issue here in Australia where because of the oversupply of dentists, people are now doing a lot more work that they used to refer on. Um, and that might be a good thing or bad thing, depending on who you ask. I was just curious what that looks like over in the UK. 
So I guess in terms of dentists, so I think there's something like nearly 40,000 dentists. That's kind of like a figure that people sort of put around. I think it's slightly less than that. But um, patients will always tell you when you speak to them, I can never find a dentist, which is really strange because there should be plenty of us to kind of service them. But I think the struggle comes on the NHS, right? It's people that want to get an NHS dentist because that's subsidized by the government and they pay far less for the dentistry that they receive. So because of that, a lot, a lot of clinics will have really long waiting lists and patients will struggle to find it. So then, then they have to look at a private option. A lot of people choose the private option straight off the bat because they will have better availability, for example, but they just might do the type of dentistry that they prefer to have done as opposed to NHS work. Not that there's anything wrong with NHS work and a lot of clinics do fantastic NHS work, but it is it can be difficult to do a lot of things within the, the constraints of the health service that we have here. So... That's one element then in terms of number of dentists and seeing patients. The the specialty side of it. So there are, like I said, a lot of people that have specialties in specific things, like Zainab said. And for me, you as a general dentist yourself, you need to develop that sort of skill set, you know, understanding of what you can do yourself and what you enjoy doing, because they're two different things. You might just hate doing a specific type of treatment and you might not be bad at it because you hate what tends to happen is if you don't like doing something this is how it was for me anyway i'll speak personally if i didn't like something i'd go and do more training in it to make sure that if i'm gonna do it then at least i'll do a really good job of it and then maybe the more you do it you can kind of develop an an enjoyment of it but for a lot of people they'll find something they like and then they'll do that some people just love general they literally love doing everything which is great for others they'll pick and choose. And then it gets to the point where you look at something and even though you like it, you think, blimey, that's that's difficult. So you have to kind of learn that and you get that with experience as to what's going to be tricky. You pre-assess everything. So root canal is probably one of the main things. You'll look at it and think, nah, that's a bit tricky that I'm going to send that to an endodontist because they're trained to do that. Then a lot of clinics now will have in-house specialists because it kind of makes sense to there's a lot of traveling specialists. So you get a gum specialist that works in a couple of clinics. You get an endodontist that works in a couple of clinics because you can keep that internal. I think it's good for a patient workflow where they know where they're coming. And if they trust you, you tell them, listen, this is the guy because he's in my clinic. Like I wouldn't employ someone that I didn't believe in. So patients kind of get that. Alternatively, for a lot of people, if that's not possible, they'll have a clinic that they work with. They can refer to them. So I think referral comes from your own skill set and I think a bit of experience, knowing what you can do, knowing what you like to do, and then kind of knowing what you should do. That's the way I'd say it. Can I say now, and maybe you can relate to this more because you're sort of the facial aesthetic practitioner as well. It seems to me that a lot of dentists sort of end up doing a whole bunch of um, postgraduate courses after they've also already graduated. Um, so they're tacking on skills and new techniques and going off and learning rubber, rubber dam. That seems to be like a big thing in dentistry and veneers and composite and all this kind of stuff. And I know that Milad, you've got your own sort of thing to talk about later on in the podcast, but is that normal? Do you have to do that? Or, or can you, do you, you know, do you learn everything that you need from uni and is it just sort of, you know, because it's all cosmetic and not part of the public system? Uh, No, definitely. There is a need to build on what you learn from uni. Um, You learn enough to be safe. You learn enough to treat, um, you know, as I said, really 
basic um, situations in order to restore form and function, deal with pain, right? But if you want to be really good at what you do, definitely training is needed. Now, we are actually obligated to do continuing professional development. So there are a certain number of hours that we need to fulfill in terms of uh, verified CPD every year um, and in a five-year cycle. So there has to be, to some extent, some training, right? But the we have a choice. There's so much, as you say, you know, you mentioned rubber dam, you mentioned veneers, you mentioned, and actually rubber dams become really trendy quite recently. Um, and this is the thing about dentistry. It becomes quite trendy to do certain things. Um, but yes, everybody needs to be, you know, when you first qualify, you need to be really good at doing some of the basics. So if, if like Milad said, there's a weak point, you know, a dentist will want to go and do an extra course in that, be it endodontics, root canal, or oral surgery, whatever. Um, there is something for everybody. And the beauty of dentistry is that you can't really get bored. If you dive into something, you find something you, you enjoy because there's so much to do. So in answer to your question, is it a must? Um, the basics you need to be good at and you need to be safe. And there needs to be a certain number of hours every year that you do. Um, but actually, it's quite tempting to do more. Dentists tend to feel that they need to all the time. And it's because two things one is that it can be quite a stressful profession and if you don't if you sometimes feel out of your depth it's just going to add to the stress so you want to be on top of your game you want to be comfortable doing what you're doing so that there, there's that reduced element of stress um and it becomes a little bit repetitive if you're doing the same thing every day so by doing lots of courses, you diversify your skill set, you start to notice what you enjoy, you start to pursue that. And that's what I always encourage all dentists to do, because I've experienced my first five years of NHS dentistry, as much as I really loved at the time doing general dentistry and getting that broad experience. Um, you know, and at the beginning, I was like, I love this. I'll just stay general dentist forever. Like every day is different. But after a few years, you realize actually it's quite backbreaking. And it's fast, right? Working the NHS. And um, and for me, I observed that those five o'clock patients that would come in with a fractured tooth or whatever, I wouldn't mind staying till six or seven perfecting that tooth. So I just noticed that actually this is what I enjoy. So I pursued that. But for everybody, every dentist, it will be something different. Yeah, I didn't um, connect my question to facial aesthetics properly there. But what I meant was... Um, you know, because it's an unregulated sort of field, um, you know, we're having to do multiple courses to justify our position, learn techniques, and um, I guess just make your your business better as well. So I'm guessing it's the same for cosmetic dentistry where, um, you know, you're, you're your own person. You can learn what you like and specialize in what you like. Exactly, exactly. And ultimately, we have a duty of, of care. Um, and so if you're met with a demand from your clientele, your cohort of patients, and you don't feel comfortable delivering, then you either don't deliver and you refer, um, or you go and train and be able to do it. So I find that a lot of dentists won't feel satisfied with just undergraduate training. All dentists tend to want to go out and do a little bit more to stay you know, to stay on top of it and to, to reduce stress and to be able to deliver more therapy. So yeah, very trendy for, for dentists to do that. Now, facial aesthetics, where that comes into it is that um, it's become, um, well, I think over the last, I think it's gradually becoming, and, and partly probably because of social media and the fact that there are now quite a few training bodies for facial aesthetics and the fact that 
in the UK, it's unregulated, right? Facial aesthetics, but there is a whole body, there is a whole um, ethos of, you know, safety first. And so a lot of us are encouraging patients to make sure that they see either a doctor, dentist or nurse prescriber, as many other countries are doing. I know Australia has its own thing with dentists, but many countries are uh, don't allow beauticians to do this sort of thing. But in the UK, it is allowed. So dentists actually feel that that they are well placed to do this these treatments and it's it's quite obvious why because we're already working the face we already know head and neck anatomy we're already meticulous with detail we already have developed that aesthetic eye right from undergraduate because we're taught to restore right form and function but form so how to build up a tooth how to create dentures how to smile design to a small extent we're taught at dental school so we've already begun developing that aesthetic eye so facial aesthetics is a really good extension of that so a lot of dentists have felt actually we're well placed to do this the you know the public need us they need that kind of level of skill so dentists are encouraged to train in that um and i feel that that's happening more and more because of social media and the exposure that dentists now have to um to other dentists doing it like myself like many others like me so I guess moving on a little bit to, I guess, the topic of the day, which was cosmetic dentistry. When you're looking at that as, as I guess, a, if you want to call it like a subspecialty but not recognized as one, what what are we talking about? We're talking about tooth whitening. We're talking about veneers. Like, Can you just give us like a, a sort of a broad overview of what cosmetic dentistry actually is? For me, cosmetic dentistry isn't a technique. It's <laughs> a it's a overarching treatment goal. It's to improve the aesthetics for that patient, whatever that means. Sometimes cosmetic dentistry, it, it, it will come down to giving the patient the most beautiful set of dentures that they've ever had. <laughs> and that for that patient is what it is. It, doesn't, it, it can't be a mouthful of veneers because they've got no teeth. So cosmetic dentistry for me is using whatever you need to within your skill set and your armamentarium to give that patient the smile the the kind of result that they're after that suits them as well it's not a one-size-fits-all and as a clinician that practices cosmetic dentistry you have to have an understanding of all the different tools in order to be able to give that patient that result that they're after and a lot of it comes from before you even touch them there is so much prep that goes into it because the preparation and the planning is what's key. The execution, once you get that first bit right, the execution can be obviously still be problematic, but it's a lot more straightforward. If you don't know where you're going at the very start, you're stuffed. And that means exploring all the options, speaking to them, seeing what they're really after, understanding the reason why now they are doing this. Why not? You know, you might've had that situation for 10 years. What is it now that suddenly made you want to change that? What's different in your life? You really have to tap into that patient to fully understand because you might give them the most beautiful smile in your eyes, but they will hate it because it didn't, hit the marks that they were looking for for that reason so that preparation stage is key and that's what cosmetic dentistry is for me it's finding what the patient is it's we've moved away from like the different types of treatment full stop medically as well so back in the day it was like treatment focused right then it became patient focused now they're calling it people focused because that patient is a person they're not a patient anymore. And that person could mean that you need to look at their family situation, not just that person in the room, but what's else, what else is going on? Where is it you're, you want to go in life? And how can I help you with this? This one part here 
can have a massive impact to your whole life. And you need to understand that and then plan your cosmetic dentistry to fit into that patient. So it could be anything, bro. To come back to your answer, it could be anything. It could be veneers, could be crowns, could be implants, could be dentures, could be one filling. Could be one black tooth that they've had because of trauma years ago. And that's the only thing you need to fix for that patient to be happy. So it might be root canal with a bit of whitening. So it really depends what it is to meet that patient's expectations. That's what it is for me. It's so funny how many parallels there are with facial aesthetics. And I think you hit the nail on the head, Milad. It's all about the consult and working out the motivations of the patient for why they've come and how they're feeling and how does that translate into what sort of treatment you're going to give them. Um, do you agree, Zainab? Because you're, you're obviously the injector as well as the dentist. Yeah, 100%. I think Milad put that really, really, really well. Um, and that's what takes um, a dentist dentistry to another level is when they can really connect with the patient's motivations. For me, when I consult, I, you know, that, that traditional barrier of doctor, dentist, a doctor patient or dentist patient, where, you know, you're just um, healing disease or just very results driven, but not really focusing holistically on the patient. I think that for me isn't interesting at all and doesn't motivate me. And when I speak to patients, I, like Melad, just really want to know why now? What's, what is it that's driven you to seek this treatment now, you know, after all these years? Um, and when I start to understand the motivation of a patient, it's, the whole thing just makes a lot more sense. And it just gives me a little bit more to motivation to deliver. It creates like a passion. When you get involved in their story to some extent, you, uh, for me, it just makes me deliver a whole load better. So I always kind of dive into a conversation like that. And sometimes it's really simple. I just happen to be in the right area. I just so happen to have found you now. I just, and it might not be so deep, um, but but then it's still, there's so much room for conversation where you, you know, you really need to find out what their goals and needs are um, and what smile design really means for them. And like Milad said, sometimes we have in mind a certain outcome, but the patient's taste is completely different. And this is what makes cosmetic dentistry so interesting. It's not black and white. You know, even as, 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 um, uh, even as detailed as the shape of a tooth, you know, being square or being a little bit oval, ovoid, we call it, or tapered ovoid, all of these have different um, perceptions for patients and for us. But having these conversations and, and finding out a little bit about the personality of a patient is really important in us being able to guide them towards what would suit them and then gauging with whether that's acceptable to them. You know, it's, it's so interesting. So, for example, this is very general, but my husband Ahmed has actually done a bit of research on this, which was published, about the perception of um, what is an attractive tooth shape in a 25-year-old female. That was his um, dissertation for his master's, and it was published. And it was found that the majority of, um, of, of women were perceived to be more beautiful if their smile, if the teeth shapes were tapered ovoid. So, and, and this is, there's, there's quite a lot of other research around this. But the general consensus is that teeth that are quite square tend to have a quite, they can be perceived as a little bit more masculine. It doesn't mean a female can't have that. Some females want that because they've got that really dominant personality and, they, and it just really suits or might suit their face shape because face shape, of course, comes into this as well. But that's just an example of how interesting it gets. And, and you can't get there unless you really have these conversations with patients. So yes, we're, we're, we're seeing things a lot more as um, uh, holistically, I would say. And what is cosmetic dentistry to me is, like Milad said, it can be anything in dentistry as long as it then 
uh, meets that person's goals. And, and it could be dentures, it could be dental implants, it could be a simple case of whitening, uh, it could involve teeth straightening, yeah. it could involve building up a tooth, whatever. Um, it's anything. Um, and that's why the foundations are so important. You need to have that broad experience and then super subspecialize. So maybe we should start with tooth whitening. That seems to be, well, where most people's minds tend to go when you think about cosmetic dentistry is I want to get my teeth whiter and you've got, you know, uh, trays that you buy from the supermarket that you take home and do yourself. I tried that once. I couldn't, I couldn't even drink water for about, (laughs) yeah, they had them in the supermarket. I couldn't, I couldn't like drink anything over like lukewarm temperature for about two weeks after I did it. So I thought that's not for me. I'm obviously doing something wrong. Um, But then you can, you know, so you've got your, your sort of low level ones that you buy from your supermarket or your local pharmacy. And then you've got the ones that you do in chair. Uh, like the zoom whitening. So could you just maybe take us through the basics of what we're trying to achieve with tooth whitening and the different uh, methodologies that are out there and the pros and cons maybe? Okay, so with tooth whitening, so one thing, the UK and Europe has its own kind of limitations when it comes to whitening, especially on the proprietary level. So the direct-to-consumer element, basically peroxide is the active ingredient that does the tooth whitening and the process by which it does it is you put it in and it releases oxygen bubbles and much like bleach works on everything else right the oxygen basically changes it penetrates the tooth and it will change the internal color of that tooth and make it look whiter and also the first thing it does is gets rid of the extrinsic staining so all the stuff on the outside then it gets in and starts changing the internal color now in order for that to work you need a certain concentration of that peroxide and it's been researched and it's it's a very safe and predictable treatment to do if you follow the steps and you use the correct material now over the counter in the uk and eu the amount of peroxide you can actually have the active ingredient is so small it can only barely kind of get rid of the external staining, which it does do. And that for someone that's got a lot of extrinsic staining, you get rid of that, the teeth will appear whiter, but they're never whiter than they ever were. And that's what the people want. They want to go whiter than what the natural color is. And for that, you need the correct level of peroxide, which then now has to be prescribed by a dentist. So then you've got two ways of doing it. So one is at home whitening and one is office whitening, as you said. So at home whitening, is typically done with a bleaching tray or a whitening tray, which is custom made for the patient. So we take impressions of the teeth and the lab will fabricate that. Now, there's trays and then there's trays because the tray is very important. There's, I could name you so many different brands of gel and they will all work. But if your tray is garbage, none of them will do a good job. The tray has to fit really well. It has to create a good seal around the tooth so saliva doesn't get in and the gel doesn't get out. It has to be robust and it has to fit really well. The impression has to be spot on and the lab has to make a good tray. So you've got a good tray. You then put the gel inside the tray. And this is something that's taught to you because the amount of gel is important as well. You don't want to put loads in because it just squishes everywhere and you waste it. You don't want to not put enough. Although it still will soak it in, you want to get the right amount in. You basically load the tray. The next key is consistency. You have to do it every day for a period of time. If you do a couple of days here and then you go out on the lash and forget to put it in and then you get another couple of days, that stop-start whitening is rubbish. Once you've opened up the kind of tubules of the tooth and the gel is penetrating, you don't want to have a break. So consistency is key. I always tell this to my patients, look, if you want to start whitening today, have you got anything coming up? Be honest with me. Are you going to forget to put it in over the next couple of days or you're just going to be rubbish? You're going on holiday. You're going to forget about it. Let's find a block of time where you can do this every day because that's the best way you're going to get your result. Then they load it, they put it in, 
Now, there's two ways. You can either put it in for like an hour a day. So that's like your daytime home whitening or there's nighttime whitening where you sleep with the gel. And again, the material is slightly different. The concentrations are different. So it depends on, again, a lifestyle thing. So I'll speak to my patients and see what they do. Some people just physically don't have an hour a day to sit there and do nothing. So for them, it's got to be white nighttime. Other people just can't sleep with these things in. So they have to find an hour a day to do it. So that's the home whitening element. The Zoom whitening, as you said, so Zoom is a brand created by Philips, which basically was like the kind of leader in this office whitening thing where you go in, they put gel on your teeth and they sit you in front of the light, basically. You have to isolate the gums to keep it safe. That used to be really, really good because the concentration we could use in surgery was a lot higher. Now, in the UK, it's still limited. So the amount that actually works in that hour, hour and a half isn't as profound as what it used to be. So you still have to supplement it with home whitening. So it can be a good accelerator. It could be a good, I'm getting married tomorrow. I'm so sorry I've left it. You know, well, all right, well, this is the only option I've got for you now. So let's get you in, let's blast you. And then there's an element of dehydration that happens with that as well. So it makes the teeth look a bit, I mean, if all of us right now sat here with our mouth open for an hour, we'd all have whiter teeth because you dehydrate that enamel. So there's an element of that. Um, and but you still have to supplement it at home. Then there's maintenance because teeth won't stay that white. Once you stop, it settles a little bit, but then also you get staining again. So that's a, a good advantage of the home winding. Once you've got the trays, provided nothing drastically changes with your teeth, so new fillings, crowns, veneers, accidents, etc., that tray will fit you. You can just get gel and top it up every so often. So patients can maintain it before a holiday, before a party, before a function, and just routinely. So there's different protocols that people have, but you kind of need to maintain it. And that is the best way of doing it. And lastly, coming back to what you experienced, David, is sensitivity. People can get it. There's a, you know, like I said, that oxygen release, that bleaching effect. It can be a bit sensitive for some. Some transient sensitivity is to be expected maybe the first couple of days, but then that wears away. And then towards the end of treatment, it can start to get sensitive again as you start reaching like a saturation point. Other people just experience sensitivity all the time because they've got sensitive teeth to begin with. They might be a grinder. They might have lost a lot of tooth tissue. Grinding patients are really difficult to whiten. Bruxists, we call them. They don't whiten very well. A, they muller the trays. So you have to change the tray design or think about a daytime one. Secondly, those teeth are just super stubborn, man. They just don't whiten as well as other, uh, other, people, as other teeth do. So you need to kind of adapt your protocol slightly, but also they can experience sensitivity, which again, nowadays in the gels, they have these sensitizers. We have good sensitive toothpaste. We have mousses that you can put on that help to kind of rehydrate the tooth and calm it down a little bit. So it's not just a simple case of, oh, I'm just going to work my teeth. You've got to really, again, find what suits the patient, what the lifestyle is, find the right technique and do it properly. Because if you don't do it properly, you could end up spending more money a lot of wasted money, a lot of pain. And the, the scary ones are the people that use the non-regulated materials because then they can really damage the teeth. Tooth whitening with the correct peroxide is not damaging at all. There are no damage to the teeth or the gums if you do it correctly. But the non-regulated stuff, I've seen some pretty horrifying things. Gums, ulcerated, abscesses, burns, tooth destruction. It actually roughens the teeth, some of these materials. They basically etch the teeth. Mm. And then they look horrendous afterwards because you take a lovely plastered wall, turn it into a brick wall. That's not very nice. <laughs> and it's, that's that's going to grip stain. So that's kind of whitening in a nutshell. It all depends on what the patient needs, what their goals are, and how you can do it. That's how we have to do it here in the UK. 
Now, I remember being in the UK and, you know, wandering around Westfield, um, White City, and there's like random teeth whitening things in the middle of Westfield. And you're kind of like, hold on, is that here in Australia too? Because I'm pretty sure he's not. He doesn't look like a dentist. And so you're saying that those people are unregulated and you want to probably stay away if, if you had a choice. Absolutely. So, so for them to get around that, they're using non-peroxide based <clears throat> materials that they can get away with under, because we've always had this, this issue here, Medical Act, and I think it's the Medical Devices Act and the Cosmetic Act. Where does tooth whitening sit? Some people get away with it under the Cosmetic Act, which then means they can do it by not being a dentist and use the materials that live within that. And other people do it with the Medical Devices Act, which means you make a proper tray and use the proper rocks that you're licensed to use. The, the trouble with the on the cosmetic level is the things either don't work or they damage your teeth. That's literally the, the, the short of it because you get a transient effect, like, like we said. A lot of those small pod things or whatever they're called, they, again, they sit their patients there with their mouth open for like 45 minutes. So immediately it looks a lot whiter because of that dehydration element. And then by the time it rehydrates, they're back home a couple of days later and you're not in the shopping center anymore. So <laughs> it's, it's just <laughs> those things I never recommend. And you hear it all the time. You know, the, the Instagram whitening thing has become super popular. There's like viral. 300. That's absolutely crazy. Dude, there's like 300 million brands that have, have like some kind of whitening solution now online. And there's a couple of humongous multi-million dollar companies now off of that and using influencer yeah. marketing to do that. They will have some benefit. Like I said, again, there'll be the dehydration. Some of them will have a bit of that. There is like a kind of organic material that's very similar to um, peroxide. It's called PAP, basically. And that can do a little thing very similar. Um, they'll have PAP in that, which has some effect. Those things, if you do a good course of whitening with your dentist first and you get really, really good white teeth, those things can be good at maintenance, a bit of stain removal, keeping it a bit fresh. But once you've got the tray, just get the gel from your dentist. It's not expensive and it just does the job properly, man. And why wouldn't you want to maintain it? Whitening is not as expensive as what people think it is. And sometimes the alternatives can be more expensive in the damage and the money wasted. Fair enough. And um, Zainab, is there any sort of benefit in using these toothpaste that claim to whiten your teeth or char charcoal toothpaste or <laughs> things like that? It seems like a bit of a gimmick, but maybe maybe there's something in it. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a whole load of marketing, and um, we need to yeah, consumers need to know. Uh, so basically, no white toothpaste is actually going to lift the original color of the tooth like a peroxide will. It's just not going to happen. Why they're allowed to call it whitening is perhaps because it might just oxidize a little bit of superficial stain, or it might prevent some stain buildup if you brush using that toothpaste, or have a little bit of. Um, grit in it that, that has a little bit of an ability to remove superficial stain. Um, but will it whiten the natural tooth color? Absolutely not. So um, people need to be guided uh, about that. Um, charcoal toothpaste actually can be quite damaging um, because mm. it actually over a period of time wears away and thins the enamel. And in doing that, your enamel is kind of the pearly whiter layer of the tooth. Underneath the enamel, we've got dentine, and dentine is actually a yellower, denser, darker part of the tooth. Um, and so if you, the more you're wearing away enamel, the more you're actually exposing the darker layer of tooth. And people don't realize that until they have been using charcoal toothpaste for a long period of time, and suddenly their teeth are actually darker. Mm. So albeit you might have a little initial bit of whitening effect over a period of time, you're darkening your teeth. So 
charcoal toothpaste are to be stayed away from. I think Milad, again, has explained this so very well. Um, and the only thing I would kind of really add is that a lot of people, and it's just regarding Zoom, because Zoom is a worldwide available treatment. And so some people will come expecting to have teeth whitening results that last a long time just from Zoom because it's so famous. Um, and the reality is that in Europe, um, like, like Milad touched on, we are not allowed to use over 6% hydrogen peroxide. Whereas in other parts of the world, um, like in the Middle East and America, uh, higher concentrations are allowed to be used um, in Zoom treatment. So the results that you'll get in an hour in those parts of the world, of course, are different from the results that you're going to get in one hour in Europe because we're only allowed 6%. And actually, 6% is not enough to yield results in just an hour. So actually, all that really happens is a bit of dehydration, which makes them look a little bit chalky or white. But that relapses within a week, if not less, two weeks. You know, So I never offer Zoom on its own. Always, it's, in, uh, it's an adjunct to home whitening or just home whitening um, because it needs to be a gradual exposure to 6% hydrogen peroxide. The only time we will offer Zoom is... A last minute occasion, uh, last minute, short notice, you know, and they haven't left enough time for teeth whitening, then fine, if it's going to be like a, an event on the weekend. Um, but I always explain that that's just not going to be a long lasting result. It'll just get you going for this occasion. So that's really important, I think, for patients to know, because it's a really commonly asked question in my clinic. Mm. Now, I'm conscious that we want to move on to um, the topic of veneers. But before we sort of, I guess, drift on into that topic, uh, I just wanted to ask in relation to someone's natural base tooth color now i'm assuming i've done a little bit of a little bit of homework before we had a chat that you know teeth have uh well each person has a natural tooth color just like skin and hair and eyes it's something that you can't really change now will that determine how white you can get someone's tooth um if they've already got like i say a different shade just like one of their friends and they're like you know why can't i get my teeth that white is it is, is, is like is there a limitation there and then do we have issues with things, say, like antibiotics as a child and, and certain medications that can permanently change the teeth as well? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Um, the different colours in a tooth come from a number of things. One would be genetics. So, for mm. example, generally speaking, somebody with uh, ginger hair is slightly more likely to have darker teeth. And all teeth have got a saturation point, which basically means that no matter how much gel uh, hydrogen peroxide you put on a tooth, it will only ever reach its saturation point. So yes, the, and in short, the answer is that um, uh, not everybody can necessarily achieve the shape that they want. But um, uh, if you put, if you, if you, it tends to be that patients like that, if you give another round of teeth whitening, so sometimes it's not your typical just two week. Uh, course of treatment, another round might help, but still there is a saturation point and there is a point at which, you know, we must accept um, that you might not achieve as white as somebody who's already got a baseline that's much lighter. The other thing, and this is um, common, is how much diet has affected the shade of the tooth. So um, heavy tea and coffee drinkers will have darker teeth, smokers especially. So smoking, especially if it's a high number of cigarettes per day over a long period of time, will have caused intrinsic staining of the tooth. And that's more likely to need a couple of rounds of teeth whitening before you achieve um, the desired shade. Um, and then you touched on antibiotics and developmental um, defects in a tooth. And yes, 
For example, some people have got, so the effect of antibiotics, tetracycline in particular, um, can cause, if tetracycline was taken during the development of those teeth, so either um, around the time of birth of the child, the mother may have taken antibiotics, or in the early weeks of child of, of infancy, if a child has had um, tetracycline for whatever reason, or there's been some sort of um, exposure to young in the first few years even, that can cause a banding across the teeth. Um, and that can be very, very difficult to treat um, with traditional teeth whitening methods. But there are some teeth whitening methods, and sometimes it is still worth giving it a go. Um, there are various varying degrees of severity with that as well. So whereabouts the banding is across the tooth, if it's nearer the gum or nearer the incisal edge, these, these, things, these factors will also play a part in um, how, how well the results will, will go. Um, but there tends to be some improvement. And that's where using what I would say premium teeth whitening brands that are very, very uh, specialized in treating difficult cases can be useful. So there's one, for example, called Enlighten that works quite well for some tetracycline discoloration cases. Um, but in cases like that, we always have to explain to patients that you, know, you may have an improvement, but it's not going to get rid completely of the banding. Um, but it's about camouflaging. And then there are other situations like, for example, white patches. And white patches can be, again, just a developmental defect, uh, illness, or if you've knocked the baby to the primary tooth, it can actually affect the development of the adult tooth. Uh, and that can manifest as either a yellow patch or a white patch. And they can be quite stubborn to camouflage. Um, so if you, did, if you had a white patch and you did teeth whitening, what can sometimes happen is that white patch actually gets brighter and in some cases, actually, it camouflages quite well with the rest of the tooth. So varying results there as well. If it gets brighter, there are other treatments that can be done. There's a treatment called ICON, which is essentially um, maybe a bit too complicated to, to kind of go into technically. But essentially, it involves um, etching the surface of that white patch and then infiltrating it with a resin that nicely camouflages that white patch. And that's done after teeth whitening. So there are ways of improving these situations still. So um, veneers, I mean, I remember years ago, these they used to kind of look like um, false nails for teeth. Is that right? But uh, I think things have moved on now. So tell us about um, veneers, Milad. Yeah, so I mean, veneers, I mean, that that is a, an in, a interesting way of explaining it to patients. It's like false nails that kind of go on because there is a lot of misconceptions with veneers. A lot of the time patients will tell me, yeah, I've, I've had my veneers done. And you'll have a look and it's a mouthful of crowns. <laughs> which is which is completely different. So a veneer does go on the front surface of the tooth. Sometimes it wraps over. Quite often it can wrap over, but very slightly, and it just goes over the it's sort of the edge of the tooth and onto the inside a little bit. And that's what a veneer actually is. Typically, it's <clears throat> made of porcelain, and there's different types of porcelain you can make them in. Um, now, something that's become very popular is composite veneers. So composite is the filling material that we use to repair teeth, um, the white filling material. And again, composites. They've improved hugely in the last even 15 years that I've been qualified, 16 years. So they, they have very aesthetic composites now that can be super highly polished and they look very much like tooth. Then there's other ones that are just really, really strong because they're better for the back teeth where aesthetics isn't so important, but you get that strength for chewing. There's combinations of both. There's layering techniques where you can you know, bulk fill it up with the strong stuff and add a little layer of the cute stuff over the top. You can stain these things so they actually look like tooth 
with a bit of staining in it. So some people out there are so amazing at this type of cosmetic work, composite work. You can't tell what's a tooth and what's a filled tooth. Genuinely, you just cannot tell. So it's artistry comes into play here. There is a huge artistic element when some of these top-notch clinicians work and you genuinely can't see it. And, you know, as, if you are a, a kind of dental sort of, I don't want to use the word nerd, but if you are one of those, you can find some unbelievable work. And sometimes you look at it and think, I'm just going to retire, dude. There is no way my work is ever going to look like that. I might just stop. There's no point. There's no point in me trying because it's so good. But then, you know, there's patients that will want that. And then 95% of your patients just want them to look quite nice. So you could, you could kind of, thankfully, we can all work and not have to reach Jedi levels. So veneers, composites. Composites are now become very popular because they have some advantages when you're doing veneer work. Um, but essentially, veneers are on the front of the tooth. And you need to make that assessment for the patient. More and more people now are wanting veneers because of that smile makeover thing. Um, they want that Hollywood look. And you need to assess for the patient to see what do their teeth look like now? What do they want their teeth to look like? And then you can uh, you then have to have a discussion. And also, what's their budget? Because money, you know, it's, it, it's dirty for some people, but it's very important. If your budget will only allow for certain things right now, but you want that look, we can find a way to do it. Um, interestingly about whitening, sometimes whitening has to be your precursor to veneers because if you want these things to be thin and minimally invasive, you have to have a good base underneath because otherwise the tooth will still show through. Because what we're trying to achieve with veneers nowadays, when I qualified 16 years ago, the techniques and the lab-based techniques of making them require them to be quite thick. So in order for them to be thicker, you have to drill the tooth away first to then build back up with that porcelain so it could it was quite destructive when i qualified and you know we we were probably taking too much tooth tissue away in some cases which then led to sensitivity led to problems led to the teeth sort of dying away needing root canals needing reparative work later unfortunately that is still kind of done in some places that is the, the common practice for that to still happen now but because materials have improved techniques have improved we can be much more minimally invasive with everything fillings veneers crowns even everything dentistry now we're minimally invasive the least amount of destruction as possible so if you're only going to remove a tiny bit of tooth, sometimes no tooth at all you can do no prep work now you don't even have to touch the teeth you can just layer on top that base shade is very important. So whitening is often a precursor to a lot of this cosmetic case because you just want the tooth as white as possible. Then you can put a thinner layer through and make that layer almost a little bit translucent as well because the way the light bounces off teeth is what gives you that realistic look. Those block chewing gum teeth that have no surface definition, no surface detail and are quite opaque, they bounce the light differently to what a natural tooth will bounce it like. So they can kind of look a little bit more porcelain-y, toilet seat a bit ceramic-y, fake -y. Whereas if you can get a nice translucency and you create little kind of shapes on the teeth, sort of these are different anatomy of teeth, the light bounces off and it can look really, really natural. So <clears throat> that's basically veneer work. It's not a block of white kitchen sink that's been smashed onto your tooth. That's just, that's not what we're trying to do out here, <laughs> even though some people like that look. So... <laughs> Simon uh, Cowell? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. Of, well, there's a lot that goes into it. So, yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, the media, social media, Hollywood, all of that has influenced a lot of people to want that kind of look. I'll get patients that walk in with photos and go, can you make my teeth look like this? 
And some of that alludes back to what Zainab was talking about earlier, the shape of the teeth. They'll come in with a shape of someone's teeth that will just look so bad on their face. And that's when you have to have that conversation and tell them, dude, if I give you this, it's, it's going to not look very good. And visualizing it for patients is super important. And that's where the digital element of what we do now and the digital smart design can be so useful because they get to see it on their own face. And then with mock-ups, you can actually show it to them in their mouth. And you can make adjustments to all of that before you ever touch them, before you ever drill them, before you ever do anything to them. Again, comes back to that preparation stage that I was talking about, the planning. Get all that right because you don't want, after you've drilled them, stuck on a load of porcelain work. They go, I don't like it because that's, that's going to be hard work. So yeah, <laughs> that, that's the beauty of, of, of where we're at now. So is this a good juncture to talk about your your own sort of venture with Robbie Hughes? He's sort of a pioneering dentist up in, is he Liverpool? Is that right? Liverpool, correct. Yes. I I assume from his accent anyway. Um, So what what, what is a digital smile design and tell us about, um, you know, his business and and your sort of partnership with him. So digital smile design is using the tools that we now have in terms of digital dentistry in order to be able to predictably plan a design of teeth for that patient so we look at everything we'll look at the face essentially so having good facial photos and a discussion with your patient is the first key element because you want to really plan everything for the face the size of the teeth has to correlate and we have proportions that we work within in order to really get that right data acquisition is key conversation with the patient is key getting the right impressions getting the right digital scans now we use as well so those days of you know, putting loads of putty and silicon and, you know, clunk in a thing and shoving in people's mouths and then gagging all over the places. That doesn't sort of happen so much now with digital dentistry. So we scan the teeth. We have a 3D representation in the lab. We have the photos. We have the x-rays. We have all the information we need. And then in a discussion with the patient, once we know their goals, we translate that to our technician who will use CAD CAM techniques and softwares to design that smile for that patient based on the proportions that can then be superimposed onto their face. So you can get back images to show the patient and say, look, this is you now, this is what we're proposing you will look like. So they can really kind of start to get a first layer of an understanding. The next level up then is to make some provisionals or a mock-up of those teeth. So that will typically come in like a stent. You could freehand the mock-up in your surgery and actually stick little bits of composite on, not properly stick them on. You kind of place them on so you can flick them off after and show the patient live in their mouth what it looks like. What we do with the system and what Robbie's developed is essentially like a stent where you can fill it in, put it in, take it out, and the patient will see live what the thing will look like. And then you can adjust that if they don't like it. If one tooth needs to be longer, one tooth needs to be shorter, one tooth needs to be rounder, squarer, etc. You do all that fine-tuning and then they literally look at it and they can see it. They can show their friends. They can do whatever they want. And when they sign off on that, because it's digital, if you need to rescan, you rescan that. If it's the first plan, they love it. You've got all the information. That can be replicated almost identically. There is no then deviation from that to what you finally get because they know what they're going to get. Then you go ahead and you either make the porcelain veneers and then you do your prep work and fit it, or you do composite veneers, where again, within Avant-Garde, so Avant-Garde is the system that Robbie developed, Avant-Garde Dentistry, and it has the the three workflows typically of how you do smart design for patients. Either it's composite veneer work, porcelain veneer work, or alignment and then bleaching. So alignment means using braces essentially to get them in a better place 
and then you can whiten and then you add little bits and bobs if needs be. So with our composite workflow, we have an injection mold technique. So again, once they've signed off on the mock-up, they're happy with that look. You can directly replicate that. And again, you get a stent where you essentially squirt the composite in and it fits beautifully with perfect finish. It has all the anatomy already planned digitally. So these teeth can look amazing. And actually, I've got them. There we go. That's so for nice. you guys in the room, you can, you can really appreciate the work. For others that aren't seeing this, maybe we'll, we'll put a photo up at some point. We will. We go. Go. <laughs> take a screenshot of that, actually. You want to do that yeah, again? So I'm going to grab a screenshot. Hold on a sec. How do I do that? Actually, I'll take a photo. I've, I've got take the whole video, so I can just do it. Yeah. You're so smart, yes. Jake. You just, <laughs> I think I've got a good idea and you just trump me every time. <laughs> so, so that's the kind of workflow. And one of the key elements for, for Avant-Garde and what, so Robbie's developed it and I've come on board is because it's very patient-centric. The patient is at the front, at the forefront of the whole workflow. The way it works, the steps that we go through, the data acquisition, the conversations, right up until the mock-up, which is so important for them to sign off on, and then the final delivery being identical to the mock-up, all of these elements really will, will make it much more predictable. We're hoping patients will have much more confidence, much more happiness with their designs because it's really catered for them and for their face, and it's reproducible. So, yeah, we're, we're really happy with the way it's going. And Robbie's been doing this type of work for, for many, many years. And it was something that I was doing freehand, which just takes a lot of time and can, can be quite stressful sometimes. But having a predictable way of doing it and using all these digital tools is so cool. And patients love it because they have no idea that all this stuff happens. People still mentally still think of us as the guys that draw their teeth and put big lumps of metal in them. You know, it's the, that attitude is definitely changing thanks to social media and thanks to certain pioneering dentists that are really, you know, putting themselves out there and putting their work out there. But we still got a way to go. And this type of work is what is what really can help that. So, yeah, we're, we're excited with what we're doing and it's, it's going really well. And the idea is just to get it out more and more, get more dentists doing this type of work because their patients want it. Mm. There's no doubt. Mm. And to make it predictable, less stressful, um, you know, make the patient have a, a good experience while they're getting this done. That's the way we're going to change perceptions for people. I don't know if I've missed the point here, and maybe I'm sort of imagining this wrong, but I'm going to throw this question to Zainab. Do you think there's any application for that technology to facial aesthetics? It's a good question. Um, I think to an extent, these are really helpful aids to have, and certainly where a clinician who may struggle with with their aesthetic eye mm. um, and sometimes get proportions wrong and find difficulty in doing things freehand and eyeballing, then certainly there's going to be some with this sort of thing, facial aesthetics. But really, I think, I think it definitely shouldn't be relied upon. I think it's really important to look at things dynamically a lot. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, going digital where a lot of things Certainly in dentistry, it's huge. I and mean, dentistry is really going towards um, being you know, more and more digital. We're already doing impressions. Uh, instead of impressions, we're doing scans. Um, I tend to design a lot of my smiles um, 
using a combination of methods. And I think for me, um, just because I really enjoy the freehand elements of things and I really enjoy looking at things with, I will always take all my records and photographs and have discussions and look at the smile and function and all the rest of it. And I go away and do my planning. I think ultimately the key is that with everything that you're going to get good results, the planning is so important. So whatever way that works for an individual clinician, um, as long as they're doing the right thing in the planning, then it should yield good results. So planning is key. Where digital, for example, digital dental design is really helping is it's helping a lot of dentists plan a lot better, taking into account facial features, center lines, proportions, etc. And it's cutting a lot of the guesswork. Um, and so it's going to help a lot of dentists. Um, and it's great to have as a tool, you know, we're going more and more digital as well. And it's great to have as a tool. Um, for me, I'll always enjoy that element of looking at things first and assessing an eyeball method and then perhaps complementing it with, with digital. So with facial aesthetics, I don't know. Let's see where the future is. But I think we shouldn't get too bogged down with it, in my opinion, in facial aesthetics especially. We're talking about all this uh, restorative work, uh, crowns, veneers, uh, you know, composites and this new technology that um, you're working on, Milad. But I, I guess I'm curious as to what is the longevity of these sorts of treatments? Is it sort of you get it once, you're done, you forget about it until, you know, your teeth are going to last longer than you will? Or is it sort of ongoing? You need to get them looked at, treated, adjusted as, as you sort of move through life? The only successful medical or dental work ever is what's still on you when you die. Everything right. else will need maintenance pretty much, right? Same with mm -hmm. what, what you guys will do. Same with everything. I mean, a knee replacement, that's that's never going to be your final knee replacement unless you die, unfortunately, while you've still got it in, right? It's going to need maintenance at some point, hip replacements, joint replacements, any type of prosthetic work. Even natural things don't last. So why would a prosthetic thing last as much? Because we are dealing in hostile environments. The reason your knee won't last forever is because you keep walking. The reason your teeth won't <laughs> last forever is because you keep eating and you're, you need to clean them still, right? So everything needs maintenance. Composite work, typically, it depends. It depends on lots of factors, but typically I will tell a patient anywhere between five years, seven years, 10 years, max-ish, without it needing anything. It's going to need, it, it may chip, it's going to wear, it's going to need a bit of polishing. It might need some, it doesn't mean, every single thing you've had in your mouth is going to fail, but one or two might need a bit of maintenance over time. Porcelain work, 10 years, 15 years, a little bit more. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say, uh, it might be a stupid question. Um, in terms of the veneers or, or the porcelains, do they stain? Do you, can you whiten them or like, do they stay, stay like that? So prosthetic work doesn't whiten. Yes, there's an right. element, again, of external stain removal from things, but you can't right. whiten things up once they're there. The idea right. with, with the porcelain, and again, the work on them, is that they're very highly polished. And that high polish prevents the kind of staining and prevents things adhering to the outer surface. You can polish them over time, but it, they, don't, they won't whiten up like your teeth were, which like your teeth do, sorry, which is why, again, a pre-assessment coming back to whitening is so important because often you get patients that turn up that want whitening, that have already got a crown, a couple of fillings over here, and then you have to explain to them that, dude, your whitening is not just simple because once you whiten everything up, those elements will look dark. So you have to factor <laughs> in the cough, replacing that crown, replacing that filling, replacing that veneer to match the new shade of your teeth because porcelain work, prosthetic work, doesn't whiten like teeth do. So there's definitely some maintenance with it. With everything, you know, patients will think, they've got dentures. They don't have to do anything ever again. 
but they still do. Even though you've got no teeth, you still got to make sure your mouth is healthy, your mouth is clean. You still got to come for your checkups. Nasty things can still happen. Your dentures can break. Your dentures can stain. Your dentures need cleaning. Implants. Oh, I've lost a tooth. I'm going to have this metal one put in. I'll never have to clean ever again. And yeah, if you don't, if you want the implant to stain your mouth, you, you still need to clean it as if it was a normal tooth. Still brush it, still floss it, still look after the gum around it. So everything that we put into your mouth still needs maintenance and nothing, unfortunately, is for life. Something will fail eventually. Hopefully that's 20, 25, 30 years later. And things are always improving. Techniques are improving. Materials are improving. Our techniques are improving. So yeah, we're, we're really increasing the lifespan of these things. But mm. the mouth is a hostile environment, dude. It's hostile. <laughs> it's a bad, it's a war zone in there. Just to add, literally, that's exactly right. And and I think it's just really important to remember that in the mouth, we've got so much going on. It's such a dynamic environment. So you've got foods, exposure, drink exposure, habits like chewing pens, um, chew bones, um, people grind their teeth. You've got the activity of the joints. All this influences um, how well people clean. So there's so many variable um, factors to consider as to how long something will last. And as a rule, we always say in dentistry that really, like Milad said, nothing is really for life because it's so influenced by so many different things. But th different restorations have different general lifespans. Now, the other topic that I wanted to sort of cover was I guess, I guess it's the boundary between dentistry and orthodontics, <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, why are a lot of dentists now doing in-house Invisalign, whereas, you know, when I was a teenager, people were sent to an orthodontist and had the train tracks. So firstly, who should be doing it and, and, and how has the technology changed? So as dentists, we can move teeth. There is nothing stopping us from doing orthodontics. Now, in-depth knowledge, um, fundamentals of orthodontics. I mean, people, if orthodontics in the UK is an extra three years, if I, if I remember correctly, to become yeah. a certified specialist orthodontist. So there's obviously some more to learn if you want to, to do that. But technically, there's nothing stopping you kind of doing it. Now, with orthodontics, using train tracks, you can do a lot. Um, typically with Invisalign or aligner therapy. So Invisalign is the biggest brand of aligners we have, but essentially they're aligners. The, the teeth are moved. Nowadays, it's all digitally done. So you, you take your data, you give it to the technician. They, you tell them what you want the teeth to look like. They move the teeth around digitally. And then the software calculates how many of these bits of plastic you need in order to move those teeth to that new position. And every aligner will move the tooth a little bit. So it's very important you wear it pretty much full-time. You take them out for eating, for brushing your teeth and drinking hot stuff, and that's about it. The rest of the time, it's on your teeth and it's gently nudging the teeth to that new position. Typically, they last between a week to two weeks each one, um, depending on what system you're using. So that first aligner moves it a little bit. Then number two goes in, moves it a bit more. Then number three goes in, moves it a bit more until your teeth are in that final position. Sometimes you have to redo the plan a little bit midway. Sometimes you need some refinements at the end. So you finish all the aligners, but one, two still needs a bit of work. Cup of teeth need a bit of jiggling. So that's essentially how aligners work. This type of stuff became very fashionable because it was predominantly a cosmetic element that we were looking for. Moving the teeth so they look better. Whereas with orthodontics, yes, they end up looking better, but majority of the time, 
what is being done is moving the teeth because there's a functional issue with them because they're so overcrowded the teeth are just everywhere you need to remove some teeth you move the teeth into that space there's a, a skeletal discrepancy so that there's something either the, the lower jaw is too far forward or it's too far back and the front jaw is forward sometimes you need surgery to correct these cases those type of things with aligner therapy that should not be your primary goal for using aligners. If a patient comes in and their teeth are beyond a scope of that, Invisalign and other companies, some companies will tell you they can treat everything. But sometimes you've got a question that as a clinician say, well, should we treat everything like this? Because there is a better alternative. And again, coming back to what Zain, I was saying with the duty of care, you've got to really put yourself in a position where genuinely every patient, think of them like your mother, your daughter, your best friend. Would you kind of do that to that person? Would you expect them to wear? Because compliance is a massive issue with Invisalign. If the patient doesn't wear it, you've got no treatment. Yeah. The minute they take that off their teeth, you're stuffed. Teeth move backwards. So to expect someone to wear plastic aligners on their teeth for two years, three years, it's a very long time. And sometimes these cases do require that and it does get to that stage and compliance can really wane. Whereas with train tracks, they're stuck on. Unless it falls off, patient can't take them out. So they're in treatment. And with the wires and the way the biomechanics work, you can achieve things quicker with train tracks in certain circumstances. And sometimes, genuinely, it is just a better way of doing it for that case. Now, they don't look as hideous as a lot of people you think as well. When you think train tracks, you think of that, typically here, especially on the NHS, real big, bulky metal brackets, metal wires, elastic, you get staining around it, looks horrible. That's not how train tracks look nowadays you can get ceramic brackets clear brackets the wires can be coated in a bit of white kind of material that chips a little bit between you and me so that'll look great long term but still um, they can look a lot better you don't have loads of elastics all over the place so even if you need train tracks they can be more aesthetic and last thing is you can even put them on the inside of your teeth nowadays there's systems where you can place them on the inside that can work. It's quite difficult. It does need quite a kind of specialist clinician to do that. And your tongue doesn't like it much. But if you need train tracks and you physically just will refuse to have them showing, that is also an option. So the whole process of orthodontics, orthodontics is moving the teeth. Why are you moving? Is it for function? Is it for aesthetics? Is it both? You know, are, are you moving them before you do loads of other stuff to them? Again, planning always comes back to the planning, right? Get it right, have the discussion. And then we are clinicians that have a bunch of tools, like a, a builder, like a plumber. We all have a toolkit. And if, if you only have one tool, you're going to try and use that all the time. But you really need a toolkit and you apply that to whatever job you've got in front of you. And that's just another tool in our kit. Yeah, very true. I would add to that that um, for me, in short, as a cosmetic dentist who receives on a daily basis requests for teeth straightening, um, what it comes down to is, and I'm not a specialist orthodontist, is to understand really well what our limitations are for not orthodontist specialists and what orthodontist specialists are really good at versus what we can do. So, like Milad said, if it's a functional problem and it involves the joints, for example, um, that's something I won't treat. I'll always refer to a specialist because if you start uh, interfering with functional problems and you haven't got the orthodontist speciality, um, potentially you can make things worse with the TMJ joints. 
And so um, that's that's so when it comes to function, it, for me, it's referral. So why I, I treat things in the smile zone and that's what a lot of my patients come to see me for. And then we just go through a proper consultation assessment. And if it's that actually they will benefit from specialist orthodontists treatment instead, then I'll refer. And they can always then come back for the fine tuning of the rest of the smile design later. So that's really important. Um, but I do think that general dentists with a cosmetic interest need to be able to straighten teeth as long as they're selective about the cases that they take on. And it's true that you need to have a bit of a toolkit, a few different things in the toolkit as well. So like Milad said, you can have train tracks, you can have aligners, you can have other removable appliances to move teeth or expand the, the arches, etc. And for me, I started off doing um, fixed braces with train tracks um, about eight years ago. And then over time realized that you get predictable results with aligners and that the amount of time it takes to do um, fixed brackets for, as a general dentist is quite long compared to what uh, what you can do with aligners in a digitally planned uh, way and with everything being so predictable. And so that's kind of the direction I've gone, but it's really good to be able to train, even as a general dentist, to go into doing training with fixed you know, different fixed systems, i.e. train tracks, different removable appliances, Invisalign, and then be able to choose according to your patient's needs. Mm-hmm. Hope that answers that. Yeah, it did. Very comprehensive. I was going to ask about something else, which I guess is a bit of a cosmetic issue. I know that um, Jake and, and his colleagues treat these, this type of disorder sometimes with Botox, but the gummy smile um, seems to be something that, that plagues certain people. And I know that they find it quite distressing. And what actually causes it? And what is the, the solution from like a dentist perspective? Well, I'll, I'll let Zainab do this because for me, gummy smiles, well, there is a dental element, right? But majority right. of the time, a gummy gummy smile will be because of the lip positioning. And when the patient right. smiles, the lip is just, just too short, goes up, and you can really see a lot of gum. So that will need then, that's when the facial world and the dental world will combine because you can make the teeth look amazing, but you still can't get rid of that gummy smile. So a bit of you know carefully placed Botox to bring that lip down will be part of your treatment plan for the patient you can't then ignore that element of it so that's where there is definite crossovers and that's something i was i was going to come on to as well is where the world of facial crosses over with that parafunction and grinding is another amazing part Mm. where these two things do cross over and there's treatment protocols where you have to look at botox or, or toxin as part of your dental treatment so with a gummy smile yeah you kind of have to look at it adjunctively and conjunctively i don't know if that's a word if that's just an issue with your eyes if you get blocked glands conjunctivized i'm gonna pass over to zainab to handle a bit more about the 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 gummy smile but yeah essentially we we do do that and that will be factored in the very smart and you make the assessment you get patients to do their widest smile they can get people to say e because when they go e that that kind of will show you exactly where their lip goes because often when patients have a an aesthetic issue you ask them to smile and, and you sort of get like this weird thing they do, which is not their full smile because they're so so used to hiding that smile because they have a lack of confidence in their smile. So you really have to plan where that lip sits and then you can work around that. You can do some dental things to kind of hide it. A lot of the time it's a distance between where the lip sits and where the, the zenith of the gum is. So you could potentially move that zenith up a little bit. If they've got quite small square teeth, to gain a bit of height, you can do a bit of gum recontouring to move that up and actually bring that distance a bit closer. But then you're still going to need to bring the lip 
down if it's a really, really high smile line. So there's a dental element, but you've still got to look at the facial elements. Mm. So this is this is a really interesting um, uh, subject and quite wide. So I'll try and, and keep it really concise. Essentially, your question is, why, does, why do we get gummy smile? So gummy smile, number of things going on. So uh, lip position, as Milad said, is one of the things. L- natural lip position, muscle act- hyperactivity, the levator muscle that lifts the lip up is one thing. Um, just the, the discrepancy between uh, size of the teeth and size of the actual jawbone. So if you have a big jawbone, you're going to have more gum over it showing. So that's a factor. Um, and uh, gum position. So number of things going on there. And with a real understanding of, of why, only then can we really treat it properly. And assessment, like Milad said, is key. So getting patients to smile Often, if they have a tooth smile insecurity, they will do a very limited smile. You've got to really encourage them to open wide and really see how far that upper lip goes, the maximum position, and snap a picture of that. Because that's how you will do your best planning. So planning is really important. So ultimately, how I would approach this is it's quite multidisciplinary. So we're looking at gum position. As a dentist, I will look at gum position with the patient. So we're... So, for example, a quite a, a classic kind of situation uh, where there's a gummy smile is the following. We'll restore the shape of the tooth, but also try and lift the gum. And how we lift the gum, two different methods, well, a couple of different methods. You can either do it with a bit of, and this is all pre-planned, of course, photos and everything pre-drawn, pre-explained. But essentially, we're lifting the gum either with a bit of laser, which is only there to, to um lift a bit of the soft tissue, so gum only. Or if that's not enough and we really need to lift the gum a lot more than just the gum, i.e. we need to get a little bit of bone out of the way, then a bit of uh, surgery needs to be done where a bit of the bone is contoured um, and in order to expose, expose a bit more of the crown of the tooth and then stitched back in that position. And this is where I like to work with gum specialists. So a lot of planning involved, lots of communication. Um, and once that's been achieved and you've reached kind of maximum height of the tooth that looks aesthetically pleasing and works well, um, we look at dropping the lip down in order to cover as much of the gum as possible. Um, and there's a combination approach I use there. So bit of Botox in the levator muscle, as you know, Jake, you probably do this a lot as well, to just uh, reduce the hyperactivity of the, um, of the levator muscle and stop that lip from from rising up too much and that's a treatment that then needs maintenance though so that's really important to discuss with patients because that needs to be done sometimes every three months or so I find an average is three months and then I often find that by combining that with a bit of lip filler if needed if the lip is also quite thin works quite well because lip filler will last a lot longer than Botox will so to actually increase the height of the lip needs a number of treatments. As you know, it's not always easy to do that in one treatment. So again, explain to patients that this is a bit of a lip journey. And if we're going to increase the height of your lip, then you'll you'll probably need a few treatments over you know, a period of time with the right intervals in between, etc. And we, we increase the thickness of the lip. And over a period of time, you know, although fillers do um, disintegrate, there comes a point where you need less and less filler for maintenance going forward. So that's really nice. And I do, so it's a, it's a combination approach. And sometimes you do all of those and you still have a bit of gummy smile, but if you've planned correctly, the patient can anticipate that. You can get really good results with combining this approach. So this is where I love, literally, I love this kind of work because this is where dentistry and facial aesthetic meet very well. 
Can I say now, have you ever used um, filler in someone's anterior cheek to control their smiling muscles if they're quite thin and empty there? Uh, a bit of myomodulation. Yeah. Bit of style. Um, I have attempted to uh, with filler. And what I've found is that it's not enough if we're talking about gummy smiles in my experience thus far. Mm -hmm. And we still need to look at really that zone with the, the lip position and the, um, and the lip height and the tooth uh, and the gum. So yes, it's really interesting. I think that's an area that we're still all as an industry learning about. And I know that you work with Allegan and Allegan are really hot on my, my modulation and I've been learning a lot about it. Um, and I think sometimes it does work and sometimes it doesn't. So sometimes it's worth a try. But I do find my personal experience so far is it's, it can be a little bit hit and miss. So again, I communicate that with patients and we discuss if we're going to do it, if it's needed. Fair enough. Now let's just end on yeah. what um, Milad said about the parafunctional things like um, grinding and clenching. Because, I mean, this has actually come up in a few podcasts in various ways. And even last night we were chatting with a sleep specialist about this and um, you know, he had his own views on, of course, treating the cause rather than the symptoms. But as a dentist, when people come to you with chipped teeth, eroded teeth, facial pain, headaches, and, and they think they're a grinder, how do you sort of go about that? Because that's quite an interesting one. A lot of the time, they don't know they're doing it. And they will go through years and years and years of symptoms that they will never think is because they have a, a parafunction habit. So a parafunction habit, basically function is normal. Parafunction is not normal. We don't normally walk around with our teeth touching. They have about two millimeters of separation. The only time teeth should be touching is when you're eating food. So if they're touching, if they're rubbing against each other, if they're smashing against each other, if they're gripping and clenching together, that's a parafunction. That's outside of the normal envelope of what we should be doing with function. That could happen in the day. It can happen typically, majority of the time, it will happen when people are sleeping. But if you have a, a habit to do it at night, you'll find yourself doing it in the day when you're not even thinking about it. There's a lot more research now and, and ideology going towards this happening because of an airway issue, which if picked up from early, can prevent people becoming parafunctioners or bruxists, as we call them, people that grind their teeth or clench their teeth later on in life. The thought process being that majority of the time, we tell people, you grind because you're stressed. And that's it. Stress. Everyone's bloody stressed. You're stressed pretty much every day of your life. But why doesn't everyone grind their teeth? So what they're thinking is, it, because it's an airway thing, so that the thought process is, when you're stressed, your brain demands more oxygen from you. If you have an airway constriction, Posturing your mandible, your jaw forward, will open the airway. When you grind teeth, you do posture. And by posturing, the thought process is you open that airway, which allows more oxygen in, which gives your brain more nourishment to deal with whatever it is that's stressing you out because you have a higher brain activity because you're stressed. Mm. So that's one theory of why people parafunction, because it's an airway issue that wasn't treated when they were young and their formation of their jaw and formation of everything else down the back of their throat is such that they have an airway obstruction. Minor, but there's an airway obstruction somewhere. They're not getting enough oxygen in. So you start grinding. You start clenching. You start smashing your teeth together. The amount of force you can generate when you're parafunctioning is much higher than you can consciously. So right. if I tell you right now to grind as hard as you can, and we measure that, then I was to measure you while you're parafunctioning, it will be much higher than that. So you can cause a lot of damage 
to your teeth. You can get stress fractures. You can get tooth wear. You can get typical patterns. So this is what I do with every examination. I look for signs of parafunction. They could be something we call enamel crazes. They're like very sort of thin, like fracture lines in the teeth. Doesn't mean the teeth are going to split in half, but you look for them. Patients will 99% of the time not even know that's there. Canines. Our canine teeth are supposed to be pointy. If you look at someone that grinds, they tend to be flatter and they'll match up. It'll be like a jigsaw. You'll get them to move one side and the top canine and the bottom canine sit together dead flat. Mm-hmm. And then you see that pattern of tooth wear. Patients might not have even noticed it. So the way I approach it is once I see these things, you can see cheek biting marks because they're just chewing their cheeks all the time. You can feel, you can palpate tender muscles that they would have never even thought. You can feel the temporalis, the masseter, the pterygoids, and there's a ligament attachment right towards the back here. If you touch that in a patient that's in spasm because they grind, it hurts, dude. It hurts. I know because prior to these lovely bad boys being stuck on my teeth, I was a grinder. And I don't just mean in the clubs. I used to grind real bad so i've been i've been having splint therapy for many many years because i just ground my teeth right down so i could feel these things on myself now the way i approach it i never tell patients do you grind your teeth because they'll tell you no what i tell them is are you aware you're grinding your teeth because that is a completely different question because they will then say what and you say you're definitely grinding your teeth you might not be doing it now but you have done it at some point and this is why i can tell you show them the crazes, you show them the chips, you show them the fracture lines, you show them the wear facets on their teeth that match up beautifully when they posture. You show them all the the, the gritty bits inside their cheek that they've been feeling, oh, I never knew that. Yeah, I noticed that now. You show them all these signs and then you ask them, do you suffer with headaches? Tell me about your headaches. Where do they start? Do they start behind the eye? Because if so, that's like a pterygoid headache. That's your pterygoid getting in spasm and you get this, this headache starts behind your eye. You feel the, the back of their neck. And when they go out at the bloom point, they're like, Ugh, dude, that's not normal. You ask them about neck pain, shoulder pain, back pain. All of this starts from a tensing of the sternocleidomastoid muscle up here. And then it starts coming up and it comes round. And all of this is purely because they're clenching or they're grinding. Sometimes they'll say, oh, yeah, my partner says I make these terrible noises in, with my teeth. That's a grinder. Other times they say, well, I'm, I don't make any noise when I sleep. And I'll tell them, okay, clench your teeth together. That's pretty quiet, dude, because they could just be clenching. They might not be grinding at all. So it's trying to basically find ways to let them know you're 100% doing this don't you cannot deny now that you're doing it because i've shown you so many reasons why and then you'll start seeing patterns in their in their headaches so there is a theory where everyone has this um sort of ability to adapt to certain things some people have zero ability others have an amazing ability and i liken grinding to this this is how i explain to them if you imagine you've got a water container every time you grind you're putting some water into this container eventually you'll reach a point that that water container will overflow. When it overflows, you'll have an an event. That will either be a headache, a migraine, pain, tooth fracturing. Something will happen that will be as a result of your grinding. Now, for some people, that water container is a thimble and they'll have a migraine a week. For other people, that water container is a bathtub and they'll never get issues at all. But it's different for everybody. And every time you clench and you grind to that severity and that force, you're filling up that water container. And then we can, with a history, see when you're getting these pain episodes. But what we want to do is stop the dripping, reduce the amount of dripping, 
and increase that adaptive ca- ca- capacity, basically. And that can be done for me in two ways. One is with splint therapy. So that's essentially wearing like a mouth guard type device. There's so many different types of it, but essentially a mouth guard type device that just reduces the force, whether that's because it's balancing the bite, whether that's because it's reseating the jaw joint in a better position, whether that's just acting as a shock absorber. There's all different types, but you're reducing the force. You'll never get rid of it, but you can reduce it by up to about 80% with certain materials. Couple that then with the muscular activity because you can give someone a splint, but if they've got mass aterric hypertrophy, if they've got massive muscles, if they are the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the face muscles, they're still going to exert a lot of force. So then what you've got to do is reduce that bulk of muscle, reduce that activity down, make that muscle less strong. And that is what you can then do with toxin. Now, I think you need an approach where you do both because if you just do spin therapy, but they've got massive muscles, there's still a lot of force. If you just reduce the bulk, but don't give them a splint, all that's going to happen is when that wears off, they'll just build it back up again. They'll go to the gym every day in their face at night and that muscle will just get bigger again. When you combine the two, you've got the preventative measure of the splint, you've got the treatment of reducing the muscle activity and the bulk and the strength that's when it works y'all bring the two worlds together oh gosh that for me is how these things work really really well and that's what we do at my clinic so that's probably the only thing that i still sort of inject um is is masseter and you know in combination sometimes temporaneous but usually splint first then reduce the bulk and then we see where we're at Mm. Uh, zainab Mm. do you have anything you wanted to add to that i guess before we uh probably getting close to wrap up time soon. We've been talking at dentistry for an hour and I never thought I'd be so interested in talking about dentistry, but you, <laughs> you've done it. I don't know how you guys have done it. I've been very, very yeah. intrigued. It's really broad. There's so much that you can... Yeah, I think really comprehensively and I love how he, that analogy is really brilliant. Um, yeah, the way I approach this is with my dentist hat and, and uh, injector hat on. Um, and so I never kind of look at this in isolation. Um, it's both. Um, and a lot of the time, my aesthetic patients will come in and it, the issue is just my my jaw looks wide, I want to slim it. Then I will always have that conversation about what could be going on inside the mouth and ask them if I could do a dental examination. And I will find very often um, some or many of those signs that Milad talked about. So I think that's that's the beauty of being able to combine um, and, and uh, look at it properly. Um, and it's true that if you just treat the masseter over a period of time, it's just going to regrow. It's just going to re- rebuild. Um, whereas if you look from both angles, you're going to be able to treat it much better in the long run. One really interesting story I thought I would share. A patient who came in and she um, she had a, a really, she's very young, only 21. She said she's got a habit of teeth grinding and a habit of pulling her eyebrows out while she's sleeping or just near sleep. And, and she said, I've been doing this my whole life. I pull out my eyebrows. Um, and I, I, you know, we talked and talked, but I treat, I st- she wanted the smile design. We started off by dealing with the, with the TMJ problem and the grinding. Essentially she had a splint. Um, uh, she had splint therapy to start with. She came back just a few weeks later for review and said, this literally, I'm quoting her, you saved my life. And I thought, oh, because I'd also referred him to CBT. So I thought it was all about CBT that she was going to tell me about. And she said, I've stopped pulling out my eyebrows just since I've been wearing that splint, which was really, really eye-opening for me because it just showed how much 
stress and um, and and habits are also interlinked, and how there was some sort of stress relief, and by repositioning the jaw and by get, giving her the shock absorber and disengaging that that habit. Um, that then somehow had an impact on her stopping the eyebrow pulling. And this is two years ago, 2018. I've recently reviewed her. She does not pull out her eyebrows anymore just because of the splint. It's bizarre for me, but it's just so interesting. So again, this is where being able to think like a detective and really asking all the questions, treating that patient as a person rather than just with one hat on and just thinking very, very narrow about how to treat something. When you think really wide and, and broadly and ask the right questions and have the right conversation and treat them as people and really go deep, um, you gain so much more. Um, but anyway, I, I digress. But bottom line is we look at it from both angles um, and often I will have a multidisciplinary approach and then treat masseter as well with the injections, with toxin. Yeah. Can I ask just a quick, questions Anna once you've committed to deciding to treat the masseter with Botox uh, what's your technique and, and how many units are you typically using um so I use Botox by Allegan I put in about to start with 15 units per side um so three lots of five is my go-to to begin with um and then I review patients some need to top up um and some don't and when I top up occasionally I find that actually I need five and five and five again because they're just really heavy grinds and they needed that. Sometimes and quite often actually people have joy asymmetries and it's not, you know, partly it is because of uh, skeletal um, discrepancy between the two sides, but sometimes it's actually the masseter that's uh, not the same on both sides or one is more hypertrophic than the other. It could be that they're grinding more on one side because of a function, a parafunction is just that way because of, for example, a crossbite. So just the way their bite is on one side will encourage them to be really wrongly biting on that side and, and overusing the muscle in an unhealthy way that they'll have hypertrophy more on one side than the other. So when I top up, sometimes one side needs a little bit more than the other, but I start off with a, a symmetrical approach and then reassess. Um, and I will inject deep, so palpating um, where the muscle is, according to the landmark of the facial artery, um, and and staying posterior to that, making sure we're staying away from resorius muscle. Um, and you really want to just mark out where that muscle is. And then it's right through the belly of that muscle, right down to periosteum is where I inject. Awesome. Well, yeah. I think we've done this to death i know everything about cosmetics yes, great. set up a shop tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> i saw um, you feeling the inside of your mouth there with your tongue there jake you were saying oh, do i have those little yeah so, yeah. yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> um so guys can, sorry go on say that can you see how much it's so linked in facial aesthetics with dentistry and how much being able to kind of combine different experts together can be so useful for patients and cross referrals and just thinking in a, in a, in a uh, with different hats on and multidisciplinary approach, you're going to go much further with helping patients, I think. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you so much for your time and, and giving up your um, knowledge and, and spending you know quite a late evening. Well, it's a late evening for us and, and a late evening <laughs> for you guys. Um, just very briefly, what's happening in, in lockdown? Like, uh, what's the situation? You're now working or not working? Thankfully, lockdown 2.0 isn't as hardcore as lockdown version one. 
Um, we, we because I think the first time around, you know, they really didn't know what was going on. They had very little data. Um, we obviously carrying out universal measures. What we've always done, we've always been a safe environment. But what new threat did COVID provide? So they just basically made us lock down and kind of. I think looking back at it, they didn't need to, and they even admit that they didn't need to. The authoritas that made us do it. But now, because we have all our PPE in place, we've got all our operating procedures we kind of know what we're doing we have everything we need and there is more pp than there was the first time around it's still unbelievably expensive but yeah. we make it work so um, because we have all these things in place we are allowed to stay open and thankfully we are recognized as one of the essential healthcare um things that are allowed to stay open so really lockdown 2.0 hasn't provided any new difficulties if anything with a recent thing that's been released we we can it's been a bit better our biggest issue here was this fallow thing where we basically if we carried out any treatment any aerosol generating procedure which is essentially everything we do in dentistry night percent of the time uses a drill or a cleat or a hand scale a ultrasonic scaler we then couldn't see another patient for an hour in that room right to allow to allow for all the COVID we've put into the air from our asymptomatic patients to settle down so then we can go and, and wipe everything properly. That was a thought process. Now they have re reduced that and we've all got some units in our rooms that clean the air and all this type of jazz. So we can now reduce it to 10 minutes, which then makes it a bit more, you know, like kind of, it will never be like it was back in the day, but it's much closer now. So version 2.0 isn't as horrifying as version one was so we can hopefully still care for our patients because we've still got a backlog of people we've still got emergencies happening all the time and to close us down would just would just it's just not going to be possible man it would be yeah. a, it, it, we wouldn't we wouldn't take it i don't think as an industry we wouldn't be able to close down again fair enough and um if our listeners want to reach out and ask you guys some questions become friends on instagram uh, maybe there's some people in the uk who want to come and see you who knows um maybe we'll start with zainab what's your um contact details and where do you work zainab so Harrow on the hill dental and facial aesthetics is my uh, practice and i'm on instagram at dr zainab aesthetics um often uh, you can dm me and i'll eventually come back to you if i don't have 99 plus dms <laughs> working on that my email address is also there and my email is always manned so email is a good way as well perfect and millet so yeah i mean if you just put singing dentist into google it, it will pretty much show you my my body of work and uh, just sort of contact details. So my website, singingdentist.com, is getting refreshed. It's getting done, but there's contact details on it. On Instagram, I'm at singingdentist. Facebook, I'm at dentistsinging. Thought we switch it up a bit. So yeah, you guys can find me. And I am, again, like Zainab, I mean, there's a lot of unread messages, but I do my I do my best to get through them all. And I'm pretty responsive to, to most people and most things. And, you know, I, I don't mind an online chat with people. So if you want to reach out, reach out. I'm there. Um, and very soon there'll be an OnlyFans. I'm joking. There isn't going to be an OnlyFans. I'm, that's not. I'm that's a joke. You know, time, times are hard out here, bro. I have to start showing my yeah. toes or something. No, I'm joking. That, that's, that's, for not that's, for, uh, that's for lockdown 3.0. <laughs> exactly, sir. 3.5. It's coming. <laughs> now, Milad, I know that I said I wouldn't do this, but is there any chance you can get a, a little rhyme, even if it's just a, a, a song that you've already done? Just let's give us an outro. Um, blimey, dude. You, I wasn't aware that this, <laughs> this you was under pressure. Now. Yeah, you have, man. Um, what do you think the original song, the one that you, you started with? Which one? Oh, the, the one first that you, one. Gap. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So Gappy, Gappy was the one. You might be Gappy if you don't brush your teeth for two minutes twice a day. You might be Gappy if you don't floss your teeth to clean all that plaque away. You might be Gappy if you're smoking 20 a day, then try to cut down, please. You might be Gappy if you lose all your teeth because of gum disease. There you go. Oh, very, yeah, good. Yeah. very good. Very <laughs> good. <laughs> need to come up with a song, David. It'll send us into the stratosphere of uh, hundreds of thousands of downloads. <laughs> <laughs> or or, or death threats, one of the two. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's great that through, you know, the non-sort of conventional ways, singing dentist has made dentistry feel a little bit less scary. Um, I don't think there's many people that don't know singing dentists now just because it's reached so many because it's so, you know, not the typical image of a dentist, traditional image of a dentist. So I think it's great. And I think we need more ways like that to kind of break the myth that dentists are scary. So thanks, Milad. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you guys can find you. Yes. Do you think there's wheels to um, sort of subcontract and be the singing injector? Do you reckon that would work? Yeah. Me? <laughs> Dude, you never... You don't know until you try. And that's the oh, beauty true. of social media. Give that it is. a go, man. Give it a <laughs> yeah. go. There's only going to be a like, few million people that will see it. It's not yeah, the end of the I world. Mean, if you screw it up, you've only got to wait a few more days for someone else to do something stupid and they forget all about you. So, Absolutely. Yeah. That is the beauty. <laughs> Correct. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. We'll catch up soon. And uh, stay safe as well. Okay? Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Love to meet you. Thanks for the chat. Awesome. Take care, guys. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.